You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. Now we're actually finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is, is drawing this thing to a close, uh, and he's, he does a great job of following the rules of public speaking, right? You don't introduce new concepts in the conclusion. Uh, the, the rule of public speaking that I learned in seminary was that in the introduction, you tell them what you're going to tell them. In the main part of the speak, speech, you just tell them. And at the end, you tell them what you told them, right? Tonight, we're going to talk about this, and then we talk about it. And we talked about this tonight. This is what Jesus does. It's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's applying what he's been talking about all along. And here's what he says. We're, we're jumping around a little bit. I, I skipped over a passage um, just because there's some thematic connections. But starting in verse th- 13, he says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And skipping down to verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray, and we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. As we look at this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount tonight, I pray that you would uh, sink deep in our hearts the truth of the gospel uh, and help us to see it, know it, and most importantly, believe it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here at the end of the sermon, Jesus gives two illustrations to help us kind of understand what he's been driving at this whole time. The first is of kind of the entrance or start to two different paths. One path is well-worn. Lots of travelers have been down this road. Uh, maybe it helps to picture like a, a popular hiking trail nearby, where even if there's not great signage, it's impossible to get lost because so many people have walked this path. Right when you get off the path, it's obvious. I think of the um, the Akuna Lefty River Trail uh, in Smoky Mountain National Park, where like it's been so used that you can see the roots of the trees. Right, like all of the ground has eroded. Um, this well-worn path that's easy to find and easy to follow. But the other path is less popular. Again, in terms of hiking trails, fewer people find that path. There might be big rocks in the way or trees and limbs that haven't been cleared. But Jesus says, imagine these two paths because they lead in two wildly different directions. Right? One leads to destruction. The other one leads to life. And then he gives another illustration of kind of the same concept. He gives this illustration of two houses. And the only difference he points out is what they're built upon. One is built on a rock. That's a good foundation. 
right? Rocks are sturdy, rocks are steady, you can anchor things to them, they're not gonna go anywhere. Rock is a good foundation. And the other one is built on sand, which isn't so great because when rain and flood and the winds come, the one that's built on the rock holds fast and the other one collapses. So Jesus is saying, in conclusion, right, there are two ways that you can live. There's a choice set before you. There's two paths you can follow, two foundations you can build on. One is solid, right? The one who hears these words of mine and does them, he says in verse 24. The way is not so easy, right? It's the, the narrow gate and the, the less traveled path, but it leads to life. One is solid and the other is weak, right? The one who hears these words of mine and does not do them. It's like building on sand, right? The way is simple. Lots of people have gone that way. The path is easy to find, but it leads to destruction. One is wise and one is foolish. And Jesus is setting these two options before us and saying, which one are you going to choose? So here's the question, right? What are these two ways? What does it mean to hear these words of mine and do them or hear these words of mine and not do them? What are the two options that Jesus has laid before us, right? One is wise and leads to stability and to life. One is foolish and leads to destruction. But what's the difference between these two? Generally, we think about the distinction in terms of good people and bad people, right? The good people are those who build their house on the rock. They obey God. The bad ones are the ones that build their house on the sand and they disobey God. Maybe you think about it in terms of the parable of the prodigal son, right? The good people are those older brothers who stay at the father's house and follow the father's rules. And the bad people are those younger brothers who go off, take their fortune, and waste it in wild living. And so the application of this passage becomes something like, look, Jesus says that the way of following him can be really tough. The Christian life can be really hard. Jesus tells us the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. But don't you want life instead of destruction, right? You don't want to build a life on the foundation of bad things that's all going to fall apart. So go do hard, good things for Jesus. I promise the reward will be worth it. In an application like that, the focus of the Christian life becomes all about what we do or what we don't do. Whatever metric we use for good and bad. Right? The foolish ones, those who build on the sand, right? they might be the people who are liars and cheaters. Right? They're the ones getting drunk at parties on the weekend and sleeping with their boyfriend and girlfriend and stealing and cheating and lying and drinking and all of these other like, very visible bad things. But the wise ones, they're the ones who don't do any of that stuff. Right? They don't lie or cheat or steal. They obey the law and would rather take a bad grade than be dishonest. They're saving themselves for marriage and helping people and giving money away and going to church. And again, any number of external things. And to some degree, that's true, right? God says that it's wise to follow his ways. Life goes better for us when we live it according to God's design. He's made us. He knows what will promote our health and life and what will destroy us. And so, yes, it's wise to live according to God's way and foolish to ignore it. But that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' contrast has never been between the good people and the bad people. Right? It's never between those who do good things and those who do bad things. The contrast in the Sermon on the Mount has been uh, about those who do good things with selfish or shallow motives 
and those who do good things out of a relationship with God. I introduced this idea last week, but I want to lean into it a little bit more, that the difference in the Sermon on the Mount has not been between good people and bad people, but between good people and gospel people. Because according to Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, being good isn't good enough. Right? Our righteousness, our goodness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He actually says, you must be perfect. Right? Good's not good enough. Perfect is the standard. I think it's really interesting in our passage tonight that Jesus doesn't say anything about the houses other than their foundation. Right? It's not like one's a mansion and one's a shack that's about to fall apart anyway. I think he wants us to picture the same house. Right? Two lives that look very similar. Similar obedience to God's law, similar attitudes and actions towards our neighbors in terms of service and generosity and hospitality. Similar spiritual lives in the word and prayer. And then ask the question, okay, these two houses look the same, but what's holding it all up? Right? What is it built on? Is it that we are good or that he is good? Again, this whole sermon has been about the difference between good people and gospel people. Think back to chapter 5. We started the semester with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If Jesus was only interested in us being good people, wouldn't he have said something like, Blessed are those who keep my law. Blessed are those who try really hard. Blessed are those who do the most. But Jesus is first interested in us being gospel people, those who rely on him. And so the Beatitudes are all about us feeling our need for Christ. After the Beatitudes, we spent a few weeks going through Jesus' teaching on the Old Testament law, really the Ten Commandments. Remember, you have heard it said, you shall not murder but I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Right? The difference is not between those who murder and those who don't. Right? But if Jesus were only interested in us being good people, he'd have said something like, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And I agree, it's bad to kill people, so don't kill people. But no, Jesus is first interested in us being gospel people. Those who obey not just in action, but from the heart. And so he calls attention to our inward thoughts and how it comes out in our actions, right? Remember, murder is the symptom. Anger is the disease that Jesus is concerned with. Uh, Continuing with the Old Testament law, adultery is the symptom, but lust is the disease. Deception is the symptom. Selfish control is the disease. And because Jesus wants us to be gospel people who obey not just in action but from the heart, he contrasts that from those who merely do the good thing because it's the rule. And then we got to chapter 6, where Jesus talks about our religious activity, right? When you give, when you pray, when you fast. In all of those, he's contrasting his followers, not with those who don't do any of those things, but with the Pharisees, who do all of those things just for all of the wrong reasons. If Jesus were only interested in us being good people, would he care about our motivation? Wouldn't he have simply said, make sure that you pray fast occasionally, and give some of your money away to those in need. But Jesus, again, is first interested in us being gospel people, those who serve him not out of duty, but out of delight. 
Those who can give generously, not because they're trying to buy something from God, but because they're so sure their Father will provide for them. Those who pray not to get something from God or or to earn the praise of other people, but because fathers delight to hear their children's voices. In chapter 7, a few weeks ago, we talked about judging, right? And how the difference isn't between those who judge and those who don't, right? Remember, judging isn't bad. Bad judging is bad. The difference is between those who judge so that they can exclude others, those who judge in prideful ways, and those who judge so that they might move towards others in empathy with love and assistance. Right? Good people judge other people so that they can come out on top. Right? They want to know that I'm better than you are because it makes my foundation feel more secure. Good people judge out of pride, but gospel people judge out of humility, feeling their own dependence on God, resting in his grace. And when we do that, we can judge in kindness, not in competition. And last week, we saw the real payoff of this distinction between good people and gospel people. It's possible, Jesus says, to do all the right things, to do some really impressive things, right, like casting out demons and and prophesying, and not actually be connected to the Father, right? Whether that motivation is, is praise from others, feeling like God's in our debt, or just feeling good about ourselves, Jesus says that doing the right thing with the wrong heart doesn't count as doing the will of my Father. That's the difference that Jesus is highlighting here at the conclusion of the sermon. The foolish one is not the one that rebels, right, that's out murdering and not giving to the poor, or just like saying, I don't care about God's law, I'm going to do what I want to do, right? That is foolish, but that's not the fool that Jesus is talking about in this passage. The foolish one is the one who, on the outside, looks fine, but on the inside, is doing it for all the wrong reasons. And I think that's why Jesus chooses the metaphor of foundations that he does. Because the question is, what is your life built on? What are you resting on? What gives you security and permanence to weather the storms of life? Where is your confidence? Where is your hope? On what foundation does your life rest? The foolish man, Jesus says throughout the sermon, puts his confidence, his assurance, his comfort, his hope in his own efforts. The foolish man looks at himself and says, I'm so good. In terms of chapter 5, he says, I obey the Old Testament law. Right? I haven't killed anybody. I might look lustfully at people, but I haven't committed adultery. In terms of chapter 6, the foolish man posts about his community service on Facebook and posts about his quiet times on Instagram because of the reward of other people's praise and approval. In terms of chapter 7, they judge not to help others, but to highlight their own goodness. And when things in life don't go their way, they point to their good works and say, God, haven't I done enough? In other words, the foolish man's security is himself or herself. Right? Because of that, the foolish man is prideful and self-righteous, always looking down their nose at those who aren't as good as they are. And the foolish man feels entitled to good things from God because they're good people. And so they don't know how to be grateful because you can't be entitled and grateful at the same time. And the fool is insecure, always seeking the praise of other people, needing constant validation because that's how we know we're okay. 
right? What, what would this look like in the Christian life? If, if this is the way you go, right? You take the broad path, you build on sand, you base your life on your performance. What is this going to look like in the Christian life? Well, when your efforts are going well, it's going to look like pride, arrogance, and bad judging of other people. But also frustration, right? If you base your life on your performance and you're doing well, then there will be frustration when the circumstances of your life don't match up with your performance. God, I've been so good. How could you let that happen to me? God, I've been working so hard. Why haven't you given me that thing that I need? But when your efforts are going poorly, right, if your security, if your hope, if your, your acceptance is based on your efforts, then it will lead to fear and anxiety about the Christian life. Right, where we just kind of have the sense that God is disappointed with us, that he's waiting around to punish us. And we ask questions like, does God really love me? Can I come back from this? Am I too far gone? And what we do in response is we look and say, man, I've been doing really poorly in the Christian life. Let me try really hard to get it together. But it's a treadmill, right? You work really, really hard, but you never seem to get anywhere. What about the wise man? What about the wise? What does that look like? Well, the wise are the ones who rest on Christ and his righteousness, not on their own works, not on their own efforts, but on his. In terms of chapter 5, they know that their goodness will never be better than the best people they know. They know that it will never be perfect. So instead, they receive Christ's goodness. In terms of chapter 6, they give and pray and fast because they're so confident that in Christ... They already have all that they need, and they trust that he will supply their future needs. They've known God's generosity to them, and so it overflows in generosity to others. In terms of chapter 7, they move towards other people in loving critique, not judgmentalism, right? Imitating Christ who has moved towards us in love with help in our sinfulness and brokenness. In other words, the wise man's security is Jesus. And because of that, the wise are humble. They know that any goodness they possess is a gift from God. And where the fool feels entitled, the wise are always thankful. They know that they don't deserve anything from God, and yet he has acted towards us as a generous father, giving all we need and more. And where the fool needs constant validation, the wise can rest, knowing that Christ and the Father have already perfectly accepted us. And so we can just be free, right? We don't, need, we don't have to wear that burden and carry that load of other people's approval and validation because we have it from our Father. Don't you want to be like that, right? Why wouldn't you want to place your security there in Christ on that foundation? Because we, like humans in general, and we in this room, we are so fickle and prone to change like our preferences, our motivations, our likes and dislikes and habits. I mean, like other parents are always saying this to me about my kids, right? They grow up so fast, they're different people every week. But like that doesn't stop in college. I mean, think back to the fall semester when you, when you first stepped foot on campus this year. Like you probably had totally different expectations, interests, a friend group, like you change so much in, in a semester, much less a year, much less five years or 10 or over the course of our whole lives, right? We change so much 
Of course that's a shaky foundation. But the author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is faithful and kind and loving and forgiving and so very good always. And built on him, we can be secure. We can withstand the storms of life, not because we're so great or we're so good, but because he is. That's the choice that Jesus holds before us. Not are we going to be good people or bad people, but are we going to base our security, hope, acceptance on our efforts or on his finished work? Are we going to wear ourselves out constantly trying to convince God to love us, or are we just going to receive his freely given love and rest in him? Jesus is inviting us to follow him in the way of weakness, in the way of neediness, ever reliant on the strength and grace that he gives. What does it take to do that? Well, again, back to week one, passages on the front of your handout. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What it takes to base your hope on Christ, to to have him as your foundation, it takes you, it takes me recognizing that we've been trying to be strong in spirit, right? We've been trying to build something sturdy on our own efforts and project this aura of strength and competence and goodness. And it takes us recognizing that that's never going to work, right? It hasn't been working. It's been wearing us out. And it takes us recognizing that it's never going to work and confessing to God just how prideful that pursuit is, right? That I think that I can overcome the problem of my sinfulness by my own efforts. It takes us recognizing that that project of being strong in spirit is never going to work and instead running to Christ and being welcomed by the one who gives you his own goodness rather than demanding you produce your own. And as you receive and rest upon him alone as he's offered us in the gospel, we're finally free to obey him from the heart, right? Out of gratitude and love and worship, not out of fear or duty or obligation. And what we realize as we do that is we're not the only ones building, right? Christ himself, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion, Right? It's not as if Jesus is our foundation and then he says, good luck building the house. No, he's our foundation and he's our general contractor. Right, like He's the one in there doing the work, constructing something beautiful on a foundation that is sturdy. He began a good work in us and he will bring it to completion. This is what the Sermon on the Mount has been about. Not good people versus bad people, but good people versus gospel people. Those who rely on themselves and their own efforts and their own goodness and their own wisdom. And those who say, even though I've been trying that, it's not working. I don't actually have any of that. But Jesus has it in abundance. So I will rest on him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and the truth it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. Father, we confess that it's so easy for us to be uh, tricked and seduced and to forget forget that your goodness is better than anything we could produce. Your righteousness is better than anything we can achieve. Your love is greater than we care to believe most of the time. 
And Father, I'm reminded of the phrase that we're, we're never so bad that we're beyond the reach of the gospel. And we're never so good that we're beyond the need of the gospel. And so I pray, Father, that you would sink this gospel, this good news of Christ's sacrifice for us, of his life for ours, of his foundation being one that is sure and ever-present in our weakness and our neediness. I pray that that would be the truest thing that we believe, that that would register deep in our hearts, and that as it does, we would live a life of gratitude, of humility, of joy, uh, and of relationship with the Father, knowing that we don't have anything to prove, just everything to enjoy, everything to receive. I pray, Father, that as we come to believe the gospel more and more deeply, that you would change us, that you would work in us, make us into what you've already declared us to be. Don't abandon us, but help us to grow in love of you and in following you and in love of neighbor and all those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.